Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is William Bernstein. His latest book, A History of Trade, titled A Splendid Exchange, was the subject of an EconTalk podcast we did back in April. Bill, welcome back to EconTalk. Uh, glad to be here. And once again, uh, I'm more than a little intimidated. Uh, you know, Bob Schiller is uh, is uh, one heck of a, uh, an act to follow. Well, uh, well, I think you'll do just fine. Our, our topic today is inequality. Uh, Bill is concerned about it, and I am not. Uh, it should be a lively conversation. Bill, let's start start off with your basic perspective. What worries you about inequality in the United States, uh, and uh, in particular? Well, what worries me, Russ, is that I don't believe that we fully understand uh, the costs of it. Uh, and the more we learn about it, uh, the the more alarming the picture uh, becomes. You know, according to the, the standard economic model, the parable of the pie that you talk about uh, so often uh, on this show and so well, uh, you know, if, if someone's slice gets relatively smaller, uh, it shouldn't matter if the overall pie uh, is getting bigger and the smaller piece of the pie is bigger than it was uh, before and, smaller fraction. Yeah, exactly. In other words, in other words, if your if your piece of the pie relative to everybody else's goes down by ten percent, uh, but if that actual piece is twenty percent bigger than what you had before because the pie's gotten so much bigger, uh, then you you should be happy. Uh, and the problem is that that is really not the way human beings uh, work. There's you know the famous uh, quote of of H.L. Mencken that a wealthy man is one whose salary is higher uh, than that of his wife's sister's husband. Um, and there are lots of other funny quotes that you can we, we can spend the rest of the show on, probably. But people do care about their relative place. And this has you know, roots in our, uh, in our evolutionary history. Um, you know, whether you survive or not, uh, whether you got to pass your DNA along or not, uh, depended upon your place in the pecking order, determined how much uh, food you got, and it also uh, determined uh, whether or not you got to reproduce. Uh, because, of course, pre-modern societies, uh, for the most part, uh, were polygenic. Uh, you, you know, you had uh, uh, the, the, the alpha males getting uh, all the females, and, uh, uh, and if you were at the bottom of the, uh, the heap, you didn't get to mate, and you didn't get to uh, pass your, your DNA on. So we are Hard to know whether those were the good old days or not. I guess it depends on where you were. In the <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that they were. It. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you. But, but um, and, and, and we can see echoes of this, very strong echoes of this, uh, in a lot of modern, not only social data, but also medical data. And I'll start with the, the epidemiological data, uh, which, which is, 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 I think, uh, the most compelling, and I think it's also uh, some of the most uh, uh, economically uh, cogent as well. Status matters when it comes to health. Uh, what you find is that even independent of income and sanitation and 
you know, the usual health habits, smoking, overweight, and so forth. Simply your status uh, in society matters uh, a great deal. Uh, the, the first person who really uh, uh, discovered this and really uh, uh, elucidated what it looks like is a, is a man by the name of Michael uh, Marmot and another man by the name of uh, Richard Wilkinson, two British uh, academics, who did something called the Whitehall Study. Uh, and Whitehall, as most people in the audience know, is uh, the street where uh, British, the British Civil Service centers upon. Uh, and he looked at uh, different groups of people uh, who worked in the British Civil Service. And these were all people who have, you know, not a, enormous, uh, enormously different salaries. Uh, they all have uh, good food, and they all have good health care, uh, and they all have uh, fairly good uh, health habits. Uh, and what he found was that the people at the top of the heap, uh, the Mandarins, you know, the, the guys who, who went through Oxford and Cambridge and rose straight to the top without ever touching the sides, uh, these people lived far longer, uh, even adjusting for, for income, uh, than the people at the next level down. And then those people, you know, the, uh, the semi-administrative people did better than the clerical people in terms of longevity. And finally, uh, the people who worked in the support staff, it, you know, even though they had college degrees, university degrees, uh, had the shortest lifespans uh, among uh, the, uh, the, uh, the groups that he studied. And this was purely uh, a matter of, of status. It really, you know, you could easily factor out uh, income and, and other health characteristics. And the, the thing that, st- that, that, that stood out was, was status. There are a lot of other examples of this as well. My favorite is that it turns out uh, that Academy Award winners live four years longer on average than the runners-up, the people who don't get the Academy Award. Uh, and again, this is purely uh, a matter of, of status. Um, what epidemiologists talk about when they talk about this is something in terms of economics is something called the epidemiological transition. Uh, when you look at nations and you look at their mortality rates, when you look at their uh, uh, longevity, what you find is that below a level of about $5,000 or so uh, in, in current GDP per capita, uh, per capita GDP is the, is the primary economic determinant of longevity and mortality rates. The poorer you are, the poorer a nation is, uh, the shorter people's lifespans are. But above $5,000 per year, the absolute level of income no longer matters. What does matter, and what matters greatly, uh, is, uh, is inequality. Uh, so, for example, you know, people puzzle over the fact that uh, lifespans, the average lifespan in Cuba, uh, is only a year less than it is in the United States. Uh, and this is because, although you know, they're obviously penalized by the fact that their per capita GDP is only about one-tenth of what ours is, but their inequality uh, levels are much, much lower, and that very nearly uh, compensates uh, for that. Well, I think that's ludicrous, <clears throat> as well as uh, those other statistical examples. So let's stop here for a moment. Let's take these three that you've just given, the Whitehall study, the Academy Awards, and the Cuban lifespans, and let's talk about the um, problems with that kind of statistical analysis. Then I want to challenge you on the implications, even if they are true. But first, let me just try to give you a See if I can get you to concede that maybe there's more going on there. 
Let's start with the Whitehall study, uh, which I haven't seen. I've seen the Academy Award study, by the way. It's very clever and it's, it's very entertaining, um, and it has a certain poignance to it, obviously. I, I didn't know the Cuban data point, um, but uh, uh, that's interesting too. So let's start with the Whitehall study. So summarize it again. Let's see if I've got it right. Um, the higher you were in the pecking order, holding income and uh, and health constant, since health is presumably quote roughly the same, or health access to healthcare at least is access and, and, and risk and risk factors as well. You know the usual things: diabetes, uh, smoking, uh, overweight, that sort of okay, thing. Okay, so if you control for all those things, you found out that the that the um, the people with the uh, larger responsibilities or the higher status. Uh, live longer. Do you know how? About the, do you know what the amount is? By the way, is it six months, five years? Well, actually, what he looked at was was raw mortality rates. It's actually much easier to measure how rapidly people are dying uh, than than uh, uh, how uh, much uh, you know how much uh, how, how long they live. Although he measured that too. But the more you know, below, I believe the statistic is uh, that if you if you look at the difference between the highest and his lowest socioeconomic or his the, status group, the, 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 the people, the mandarins, the people at the top, and then the clerical support people at the bottom, the mortality rates of the people on the, at the top were very were, were just slightly more than half of the mortality rates of the people at the bottom. So the first thought there is that there's an unobserved variable, which um, can't be measured in the statistical analysis, that is causing both high status and high health. That can't be rejected, of course, by the data. So I guess the the question would be oh, – that'd be my first thought. On the Academy Awards, there's a bias in the data, which is, of course – and I don't remember if they took tried to control for this. Um, a lot of people don't win things because they don't live long enough, so there's a sort of built-in um, – Correlation. No, no, no. What we're talking, what, what we're, what, that was, that was a study that you know, if anybody wants to look at, it's in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it's actually online. Uh, but this is, yeah, we'll you know, this, 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 is, this was instantaneous. I mean, you know, there, there are five people nominated. The envelope, please, and then instantly you have one winner and four losers. No, I understand, but let's say, um, as is often the case in Academy Awards, you. Um, you have to be a runner-up a few times before you win. Doesn't happen to everybody. Some there are some first-time winners. Some performances are so extraordinary uh, that it, um, it wins the person the Academy Award right away. But a lot of times you have people like um, Peter O'Toole who's ruining your data because he keeps uh, being a runner-up. He's quite old now. Um, he could still live long enough to get one, in which case he'll boost the winning the Academy Award, uh, get you a long life. But if he doesn't win one, he is going to, as uh, the other folks, he's going to fall into the category of loser who died. And so if you were a runner-up early on in your career and you die young, it could be because you felt inadequate next to all those winners, but it could just be you died young and you didn't have a chance to enter the pool. So I don't know if they control for that. So that would be my, my second uh, concern with the, with the, my concern with that second study. Um, with the Cuban argument, the, my only thought about that one is I'd like to see the data. It could be true that they only live a year less than us on than Americans on average. I'd like to know how they live relative to Cuban Americans who've emigrated here. But of course, there would be lots of biases in that sample because of 
the people who chose to leave wouldn't be the same. But I do find it interesting that so many people risk their lives to have the shorter lifespans living in the unequal United States. But n nobody tries to – very few people try to break into Cuba where they could live this long life because they'd be like everybody else. Well, yeah, and that, that raises a very good point, uh, which is, you know, human, human, <laughs> human desires uh, and human drives versus, uh, versus actual – versus actual outcomes. Uh, you know, quite clearly, nobody, you know, e e you know no one, you know, if, let's, let's assume just for the sake of argument that lifespans uh, were uh, actually greater in Cuba. Uh, and let's assume that that's actually a statistical fact that the Cuban health ministry isn't jiggering the figures, which right. I would, I cer certainly would admit would be a problem. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little worried about it, but on the other hand, you know, the Cuban health system is actually fairly open. Uh, you know, I happen to know several people who've actually worked in the, uh, you know, Americans, American physicians who've worked within the Cuban healthcare uh, system. And, and they, you know, I've talked to them about these statistics, and, and, and they think that they're real. I mean, they don't see, uh, you know, high mortality rates among relatively uh, uh, um, uh, young, young Cubans. They, they, they think people do live to a ripe old age uh, in, in Cuba. But, you know, I'll certainly admit that that's, that that's a possibility, but people are much more impressed with the fact uh, that your standard of living is so much higher in the United States than the fact that they live a year longer. Or well, you know, even if even if Americans live ten years longer than Cuba, that still wouldn't impress people all that much. I mean, I'll freely admit that people are trying to break out of Cuba, uh, and it's not because of any health statistics. It's simply because our standard of living is so much higher. Yeah, I, I think it's more than just the material as well. But l let me go back to the fundamentals, and then I want to get to the economics. In these epi, epi how do you pronounce it? Epidemiological. epidemiological yeah, yeah. These epidemiological uh, studies that look at mortality. Uh, you alluded to this, but is there any attempt to describe what the biological mechanism would be? Oh, yes. Yeah. So because, and, and, because, and I say that because if Academy Award winners had shorter lifespans because they, had, um, they lived it up and lived too high and exhilarated by their victory, partied too many nights too long, we'd say, well, that, we'd explain that too. We'd say, well, it's not status. It's... Um, they got distracted from other things. Uh, so in this case, it's always easy to tell an expo story. What is the epidemi epidemiological argument or biological argument for why uh, inequality would lead to shorter life other than it's consistent with some people's worldviews? Well, there are, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to, to come up with some medical narratives that underlie that, but there are certainly some facts that support it, which is that people who are under great socioeconomic stress have higher levels of catecholamines, that is to say, adrenaline, uh, adrenalines. Uh, they have higher levels of cortisol, of, cortic of endogenous corticosteroids, uh, and they have higher blood pressures. Uh, and they also have higher uh, levels of markers uh, for inflammatory processes that relate to cardiovascular disease. There's something, for example, called C-reactive protein. Uh, has there ever been a systematic study of uh, both high and low-end folks? I mean, I would think, for example, that in um, just to take uh, actors and actresses in general – or which are high-end people, by the way, of course, they have much higher uh, incomes, the successful ones, than the average person. 
or say Wall Street folks, we're taping this uh, on September 25th, 2008. Uh, there is no Wall Street uh, right now. Uh, all the investment <laughs> banks have disappeared, and I want to come back to the impact that's going to have on inequality. But if we go back, say, oh, three weeks ago, when there was a Wall Street and people made very large bonuses and had extremely high incomes relative to the average, I would think that if you did a medical survey of those folks, they would have extremely high levels of adrenaline and uh, steroids and uh, the third thing in their bloodstream. Aren't those folks off the charts? No, no. Actually, that's that's the funny thing. They're not. I mean, they're very stressful lives, yeah. for example, yeah. I, even, know, though they're, even though they have high income. Yeah, no, they they may seem to have highly stressful lives, but they also uh, are very highly autonomous people. Uh, They live their lives the way uh, they want to, uh, and their status is high. Uh, they are paid attention to, uh, and actually, when you when you look at the data on people who you think are under uh, a lot of stress, uh, actually, uh, their their levels of well being and the markers, the levels of markers that you when you measure them for these people are all relatively uh, lower. What the cognitive neuropsychologists like to talk about is something called self determination theory, uh, which you know sounds sort of new agey, but it's actually a testable hypothesis that pans out quite well in the, in the scientific uh, marketplace. Uh, and basically what, what SDT says is that people are satisfied really by three things. There's autonomy, there's connectedness, and there's competence. So, for example, you know, Russ, you, you, you enjoy your connectedness to your students, uh, and you in, enjoy the, the extreme level of competence that you, that you demonstrate. Uh, and you also, as an academic, have a fair level of autonomy. You go where you want to, and you work on pretty much what you want to work. Nobody tells you what to do unless you're you know, shoehorned into a committee you don't want to do. Uh, and so even though you, know, you may not be paid as much as an investment banker, your level of well-being, I'll bet, is pretty high. Uh, right? I like and to your, think and, so. And your Could levels be. of all of these, these stress markers are actually, I'll bet, pretty low if we were to measure them, even though you may feel stressed from time to time. And the same thing is true of someone who is a master of the universe uh, hedge fund uh, 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 manager. Uh, you may, he may look stressed to you, but actually this is a very autonomous uh, individual. We're very similar, uh, <clears throat> those folks on the hedge funds and me. Very, no, I know what you're saying. It's an interesting point. Um, of course, you know, if you contrast me with the hedge fund manager long enough, I might start to lose, you're suggesting I would lose some of my feelings of autonomy, competence, and uh, what was the third one? Connectedness. Connectedness is going to stick around, but the other two, I might start to have some anxiety about it, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, and, 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 and again, you know, once you, once you place your material well-being next to theirs, that doesn't make you feel uh, terribly good about you know your job uh, either, but but overall you know you're you know the, if you took the average tenured or even non tenured uh, professor in a major academic department, uh, they're going to have far level lower levels of all of these biological stress markers that that I've that I've that I've just mentioned. Well, I think that's true, but I it, we're I think we're take, picking kind of a maybe not the best example. Again, this is selectivity bias is what it's called in statistics. Yeah, but you know this. There's an example that I that I like to okay. give, which which is that you know go go to an academic conference uh, and pick out the 75 year old Nobel Prize winner. Okay, yeah. everybody still wants to talk to this guy. This guy is getting stroked every minute of the day. Correct. And and this guy, you know, by and I don't know that everyone's ever, anyone's ever measured this, 
but I, will, I can almost guarantee you that, that, that Nobel Prize winners live far longer than the average tenured professor because you take someone else, the, you know, if you're a 75-year-old uh, emeritus professor who didn't get a Nobel Prize and wasn't chairman of the department, uh, no one's going to pay attention to him when he goes to the conference. Actually, the chairman of the department thing works in the other direction. In ah, academic okay. life. It's a sign of, except for my chairman, Don Boudreau, who has very high self-esteem and... and <clears throat> Lots of autonomy, connectedness, and and whatever, but uh, it's not like the Nobel Prize. But I I get your point. I think there's some truth to that, although, again, I'm surprised that the biology is such that being stroked and loved and adored helps you live longer. I would think it would make you a certain type of person it makes happier. Uh, Another type of person it makes miserable. Um, It's an interesting thing. I've always assumed that people who go into acting – and politics to not unrelated fields. Yeah. Now, there's, there's, are, there's, there's, where, the, where the rubber really meets the road here, and I want to move away from health, okay. uh, is, is when you look at the sociological right. and, and, the, and, the, and the criminological uh, data. Uh, if you look uh, at, you know, what are the social determinants and the economic determinants of crime, uh, it, you know, of course, income has a lot to do with it, but the inequality, again, has a much stronger effect. And obviously, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to separate income from income inequality, because obviously, poor people have higher crime rates. But it, it's actually quite possible to do that, and I'll explain uh, sure. Is that how true, by that the way? at least done in one instance. Is it true that poor people have higher crime rates? Yes, they do. Throughout uh, history? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, if you... If you what what studies what 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 criminologists and what sociologists have done have you know done very sophisticated multivariate analyses uh, of of inequality and crime rates and you find for example that if you plot uh, among the fifty u s states and among the Canadian provinces uh, just a simple Gini coefficient uh, of income, income dispersion. Let's in explain the, that. In the state. Oh, a Gini coefficient is just a, it's a, it's a, it's a uni, it's a one-dimensional measure of inequality. So that a Gini ratio of one means that one person has, is earning all the income in the society and no one else, uh, earns anything. So that's a very unequal society. Uh, and a Gini coefficient of zero means that everybody has the same income. Okay. So the United States, the American Gini ratio, I don't know, is somewhere around 0.47 now. Uh, most European countries, it's closer to 0.3. Uh, you look at underdeveloped nations, uh, you know, Bolivia, Botswana, places like that, uh, and they've got Gini coefficients in the range of 0.6, maybe as even as high as 0.7. Uh, so, okay, so let's go back to the state-by-state analysis. Yeah. So what you find is that when you plot the Gini ratio uh, versus uh, the homicide rate among the American states and the provinces, it's almost a straight line. The, you know, the correlation coefficient is very high, and the R-squared, that is the amount of, of the homicide rate that you can actually ascribe simply to inequality, is also uh, very high. How about the suicide rate? Uh, don't know. That's a good question. Uh, uh, I'm extremely skeptical of that finding. Uh, well, so let me let me let me finish because there's, there's 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 one there's one there's there's one I think piece of data that just absolutely stands out. So you might say, well, they haven't controlled adequately. Yeah. 
yeah, they might they haven't controlled adequately for a number of areas, but particularly for income. But when you look at the Canadian provinces, first of all, the Canadian provinces all have homicide rates that are lower than 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 the than the American states. But what is striking is that it is actually the poorest Canadian provinces because of their redistributive system that have the lowest inequality, the, the maritime provinces in the east. And they also have the lowest homicide rates. So in Canada, it is actually the poorest provinces that have the lowest homicide rates because they have the least inequality because I guess everybody's on welfare. Uh, I find that totally uncompelling. So let me give you my uh, problem with it and let you give you a chance to react. <clears throat> my, my basic problem, by the way, with with much of these data and much of the worries that people talk about is a perception problem. I think most people have a great deal of problem, a great deal of difficulty knowing where they are in the income distribution. The example I like to use, I don't know if I've used it here at EconTalk, but the example I like to use is that most people have a pretty good idea of what their annual salary is uh, before tax. They're not so good at giving you the annual salary after tax. They're not good at all at compensation. They often myself included, have, would have trouble giving you a precise measure of what the dollar benefits are that George Mason University provides in healthcare and retirement. I know they're positive. I know it means that my after-tax income understates my well-being, financial well-being, but I don't know what that is. And moreover, I have no idea where I stand in the percentile placement of uh, the average American, uh, of the American income distribution. And even more, I have certainly less idea of how that percentage has changed in the last, say, five years or ten years. I may have done better than I did five years ago, but I don't know whether I've moved up relative to others or fallen behind. Now, I do have an idea of how I'm doing relative to my brother and sister uh, and their spouses, your H.L. Mencken example. And I might have an idea of how I'm doing relative to my immediate neighbors if they buy a fancier car or something like that than I own, which they do, by the way. Uh, but I still sleep well at night. I, so I don't understand the argument. Forget statistical artifacts of of controlling for the right things. Do you really believe that, for example, somebody in the state of Iowa looks around at Iowans, of which they have not the faintest clue of how they stand relative to Iowa as a whole, that they actually – that that affects their, their propensity to have – to kill somebody? And why aren't they comparing themselves to – the people in their neighborhood or the country as a whole. So to go at the province level in Canada and suggest that people, say, in Nova Scotia are more peaceable because they're more like each other in that province, of which is a vast, relatively low-density place, strikes me as a totally untenable intellectual claim. Well, you know, uh, again, what you've also just done, by the way, is you've you've undercut the major criticism of the Piketty size data, and I'll talk about that just very briefly since I brought it up. Which is, you know, when when people talk about inequality in the United States and how it's measured, I think that's the study that's uh, uh, their data that is that is cited more than anybody else. I agree. Uh, and Piketty that's, and. Is one of the authors in Saez, S A E Z. Yeah, Emmanuel Saez at Berkeley and Thomas Piketty, who's I think a Frenchman actually. Well, and we'll put those uh, references up on the web. Yeah, and and their data uh, are based primarily uh, on, uh, at least in the United States, on IRS data, on government tax data. And the, the, whenever you, you see a criticism of it, the criticism that's always made is, well, that's not what the census data show. All right. 
the census data show much less inequality. And there are a number of criticisms of the census data, which are, you know, we probably don't want to talk about on this, on this show. But obviously, if you want to know how much people make and you want to know how much inequality there is, you want to see what, you'd much rather see what they put on their 1040 rather than ask them, how much are you making on a census form? Uh, and I think you've just, you've basically just, just underscored, uh, that, that point. Yeah, I, I mean, at the well, end prob- I, I have a bigger problem with, with their study, but we'll, we'll come to that, I we'll suppose. We'll come to that, yeah, yeah I'm ahead. sure we will. I'm yeah. sure we will, but <laughs> it, it's, um, you know, do I, do I believe that people feel stressed when they feel disadvantaged and they lack autonomy on the job? I mean, it's not just that, you know, it's not just that they have a, you know, a small rat-infested apartment and they can see, you know, the people in the wealthy part of town are living in McMansions, but it's also when they go to work, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they have to uh, uh, beg you know, their boss to go to the bathroom. Uh, if they show up five minutes late, they get uh, yelled at, and the second time it happens, they get fired. That's certain, that sort of thing, that sort of status difference, certainly is a cause of stress, and it's certainly a cause of mortality. I don't, um, that may be, although I don't know. That may be. I don't think most people in the rat-infested apartments spend a lot of time driving through the McMansion neighborhoods. And in fact... There's a demand for people to watch the people in the McMansion neighborhoods. They seem to enjoy it, not not be penalized by it. If we look at celebrity magazines and shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, people seem to enjoy seeing how wealthy people live. But putting that to the side, those observations, which are interesting and I think psychologically important and spiritually important, and, and we, I hope we can talk a little bit about this outside the raw numbers, those have nothing to do with those studies. Those studies are, have nothing to do the, the empirical work on this issue about death rates or homicide rates or life expectancy have nothing to do with that person's daily life and workplace environment. That's an interesting hypothesis. It could be true, but it's not. It's not enforced by. It's not confirmed by those statistical results because those statistical results are statewide data or province-wide data in the case of Canada. I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. I, I mean, you know, I can present data all day long, uh, and and you can, uh, you know, criticize it and 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 come up with some very good criticisms. But the point is, I'm, I've yet to see any data on the opposite side of of the argument. I've yet to see data that suggests that inequality is not important. I've yet to see any data, especially epidemiological data, that doesn't say anything but that economic inequality is a major determinant of health. Maybe there are data out there. Maybe people just haven't done the studies in the right way. But no one has seen them, uh, and I don't know an epidemiologist who doesn't believe that, you know, in this, in this day and age, that socioeconomic status is not a major determinant of health. I think socioeconomic levels are a determinant of health, although, again, I'm not – I don't know the magnitude. Uh, independent, independent of income. Right. I think that would be the challenge. Uh, I would be um, – I'd be surprised. Of course, I wonder – you know, there is a confirmation bias here. I suspect many of those folks have an axe to grind, but maybe I'm being unfair to them. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I would actually accept that as, as a criticism uh, because, you know, I mean, I, I go to conferences, I hear these people talk, and I think there, you know, there is a bit of an axe 
there, but at, you know, but at the same, there is a bit of a bias there among some of these people uh, because none of these people are, are, you know, terribly, terribly wealthy. But at the same time, uh, you know, they they exist in this academic meritocracy, and the last thing they want to do is present data that can be picked apart by a smarter person. Well, I'm doing my best. I won't say I'm a smarter person, but I, I do think there are problems in those data. But uh, let's let's go on. So we have we have the epid we have I can't say that word today epidemiological. Yeah, it's too many syllables. Um, I'll call it the bio data. We have the epidemiological data that suggests a relationship between inequality and health results or social uh, phenomena like um, homicide. What else are you concerned about? Well, there, then there's then there's the macroeconomic data. Uh, you know, there's the the, the famous uh, commission that was that was uh, uh, put together by by uh, Jack Kemp when he was running for vice president in 1996. And basically, what he said was that, you know, if we got a flat tax, uh, that our rate of economic growth would double. Uh, so that you know, there's this 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 idea out there that all you have to do is make the the tax structure fairer, and when you know fairer in the libertarian sense, that it becomes flatter and less progressive, that this will increase incentive, hours, uh, uh, work will increase, productivity will increase, and we'll be headed towards a prosperity uh, of the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, and, you know, as you're, you're as well aware of it, I am. It's one that can never be really proved or disproved. And I'm, symp- think, I'm sympathetic to it, of course. Yeah, but, um, but on like, more, by the way, on both moral and practical grounds. Well, and that's, that's another issue, is that, is that you, know, when, uh, you know, when you have this discussion with certain people, they, you, know, you, can, you can actually wear them down on the data, but then they always fall back on, but it's wrong. It's wrong to steal. Uh, and that's an argument that can't be argued against. Uh, you can also make an equally uh, uh, strong moral argument, I think, that uh, of the sort that gets made on the left, which is that in a, in a wealthy society, uh, it is immoral that there are people who are, are homeless. But you know, or who earn X times the. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. So you know, and you can't. And the trouble with the problem with moral arguments is that you you really can't. Uh, you can't uh, argue with them. Yeah, you, you can't. But they're you can't, interesting. You can't argue with them. But but let's let's just look at it. Let's just look at the look at some very broad uh, facts here. Okay. All right. According to to that particular argument, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany ought to be the poorest places on earth. All right, uh, and Somalia, to use a really inflammatory example, should be the richest place on earth. Because after all, they have no government is certainly not on on anybody's back in Somalia. There is no government, and there are no taxes in Somalia. Uh, Lucky them. Purposes. Yeah. Well, so, what's so, so the... but let me, but let me, let me, let me, let me just very briefly lay out the data. So, the, so the cross national data certainly makes you a little suspicious. Then you look at the United States. You know, from the, the 40s and the 50s, uh, and on up to around, I think it was. 1970, almost 1970, we had a top marginal rate of 91%. That was the golden period of economic growth. Reagan cuts the uh, the tax rates dramatically, uh, and economic growth falls. Okay, confounding variables. Uh, it's not all uh, tax policy. There might have been other things going on, like the oil crisis. But still, it, it kind of makes you 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 wonder. Uh, and then finally, there's the there's the icing on the cake, which is something I always like to do to get people's juices going, which is to point out that during, you know, since 1948, uh, during uh, Republican administrations, economic growth was 1% uh, lower on average than under Democratic administrations. 
Yeah, I've seen those data. They're very sensitive to a couple uh, data points, a couple administrations. But of course, I mean, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not going to ask you whether you're one or the other either. It's not relevant for the conversation. But what you're suggesting, let me try to put it a different way. I think you're suggesting that that the Republicans who historically are associated with uh, low taxes and less progressivity, you could argue that low taxes are much more um, create more equality, but they're also associated with less progressivity. Whereas the Democrats are associated with higher taxes, more re- more redistribution, and uh, more progressivity. That that policy has resulted in a more successful economic regime, that inequality costs us economic growth. Yeah, and, and I haven't, we really haven't gotten to the reason why I believe that is. I mean, we've talked about the health I don't think that. I don't think that's, a, you know, I don't think that's true, yeah. uh, that, that inequality is a, a factor in economic growth. In fact, I'm, I'm of course, uh, susceptible to the opposite argument, that inequality produces economic growth. But uh, let's, let, I'll let you finish. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know the way you explain it, and I think it's a very I think it's I find it compelling. I'm sure you won't. Uh, is that you know the ultimate the ultimate basis of our prosperity, uh, as we both know, uh, is 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 the security of our property rights and the security of rule of law, uh, and. The person who does not feel that he's getting a fair shake out of the society uh, is more likely to steal. The person who's on, you know, who, who who's worried about where his next meal coming from is is more likely to steal. And so you wind up with a society uh, in which two percent of the population is in jail, in which there are several million people working in the security industry, uh, and in which there are upwards, there will be upwards of, of, I believe, eight or ten million people within the next year or two living in gated communities. Uh, So when you have increased inequality, the costs of protecting your property rights, your property right enforcement costs, uh, increase dramatically. And I think that 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 offsets the incentive effect. Uh, that is to say, uh, that obviously, you know, unequal, unequal incomes, a flat tax structure is going to produce a great deal of inequality. That will increase incentive according to the standard economic model. But I believe at the same time, it also increases, uh, your, your, uh, property rights enforcement, uh, costs. And I think that's what the, I think that's what the offsetting factor is here. Okay. Well, let me, let me mention a couple things. Um, First, I want to recommend a book to folks out there. I don't know if it's still in print. I'll try to find uh, a link to it. It's a very interesting, uh, thoughtful book. It's called The Uneasy Case for Progressive Taxation. It's by Bloom and Calvin, two uh, University of Chicago law professors. It was written a long time ago. What they do is they look at the moral and practical case for progressive taxation, and they lay out all the arguments uh, in favor of it. And they basically come to the conclusion that the arguments are not particularly compelling but are a little bit compelling. So that's why they call it the uneasy case. There's some suggestion that progressive taxation might be a good idea, but but they, they, don't, they can't really make it as ironclad as they like. But whether you agree with their conclusion or not, it's a very thought-provoking book on a wide range of issues. and It's a, it's a short book, which I always um, think is a plus. Uh, the second thought I'd have that I think we ought to look at, and I don't have the date in front of me, but uh, the data are out there, which is the impact of tax policy on after-tax both income and consumption. I don't think it's very large. And one of the reasons is not – meaning to say that that 
the progressive tax doesn't do much to reduce inequality, and a more a flatter tax wouldn't do much to increase it. Let me give you one of the economic arguments, and then uh, maybe we can talk about it more broadly. The argument would be that if we raise, let's say we went and um, let's put a tax on uh, doctors and lawyers on the argument that uh, their services are overcompensated uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, but let's just do it on this uh, alleged moral ground that it's not fair or this practical ground that you're invoking that that they're living uh, better and longer independent of their income but because they are so much better off relative to others. So we're going to take uh, their income uh, at a higher rate. What that will do is because of market forces, it's going to raise their pre-tax incomes. Now, it might not raise a dollar for dollar, but attempts to change the income distribution via tax policy, or a better way to say it, an attempt to change the financial or economic material well-being of folks through tax policy, I think has been had very limited success. So you can be in favor of, uh, of high tax rates either because you think people of high income should be um, – punished or on moral grounds or on these practical grounds, but I think the impact or symbolic grounds, which is what I'm suggesting is the most likely result, I think the impact on their material uh, status is really quite low at current levels. And when I say current levels, I mean sort of what modern uh, democratic states have done. Well, you know, again, I, I don't think I can disagree with that. I, I, I would tend actually to almost uh, to probably to, to support you on that. But you may not be able to radically affect uh, the relative distribution of income, but you can certainly uh, offset um, the disadvantages uh, of it. For example, you can use that increased tax revenue to decrease uh, classroom sizes in inner cities. You can create more urban parks uh, so that uh, disadvantaged children don't have to stay in their, their their apartments all day long, and they can get outside uh, because you know because otherwise they're not safe. Uh, and you know you can have any number of nutritional uh, and health support uh, programs. Uh, you know one statistic, it's, and this is the, I think it's unarguable, uh, and it's one of my favorite ones. We'll see is about that. Is that is that is that is that is that uh, you can't argue with height, uh, uh, with height measurements. Okay. Uh, that's, 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 a, that's a tough one to jigger. And that the average uh, Dutch male uh, is now uh, five centimeters taller than the average American uh, Caucasian male. This is non-Hispanic, non-black, uh, same basic uh, ethnic uh, stock, more or less. Uh, and that the average Dutch female is six centimeters taller than, than, than her American uh, compatriot. And this is simply the, uh, the result of uh, the direction of, uh, of funding into uh, uh, public health uh, measures, I'll, simple, I'll, public, pu- simple public health measures. And, and, with and height, you as we both know, is a, is a very good economic historical tool. It is, but I was with you until you said simply. You know, <clears throat> the, I can't argue with the first part. I bet they are taller, uh, although even there I wonder if it's done correctly. You've got to do a sample. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I'll give you that. Let, let me go back to the um, this issue of, of tax policy. I like your point that that if we tax the rich at higher rates, we can fund more stuff that might make lives the lives of the poor better. And I think what you've done there, which I think it's an interesting argument, uh, but you've confounded the absolute levels with the inequality issue. So, for example, uh, the argument would have to be that increasing amounts of aid to the poor, either in educational quality or daily life through parks or nutrition, would have a bang for the buck 
above and beyond the increase in their absolute well-being, you'd have to argue that – which might be enough for you, right? I understand that. But you're also arguing something stronger than that, right? You're trying to argue that, that the closing of the gap in their well-being is also going to boost their uh, health and other issues, right? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I also, I also would like to get back to to something else. That, you know, I want to finish your thought, which is, you know, the effects of of uh, of, of of changing tax policy and and, mm-hmm. of, and of increasing incentive through a flat tax. Um, as as you know, probably as well as as I do, uh, that actually uh, hours worked, particularly among males, is fairly inelastic to the tax rate, uh, and that's because that there is an incentive effect, which which increases hours worked as as after-tax pay goes up, but there's also an income effect, uh, which moves in the opposite direction, which is that when you tax people, uh, they feel poorer, and so they have to work more hours. And so that, you know, when you, you, can, you can change marginal tax rates up and down all you want, it really doesn't affect the way most, the, the, the number of hours that most people uh, will work, especially males. Females are a little responsive to that, but males, no, it I, turns out, aren't. I, the measured data are very uh, uh, consistent with that, although they're, one of the challenges in any of those analyses is that they're looking at a point in time. I'll just give an, uh, an interesting empirical point, which is that at the turn of the 20th century, turn of the 20, beginning of the 20th century, 1900s, uh, poor people worked longer hours than rich people, and that has reversed, which is an interesting phenomenon. I've I don't know who made that observation first, but a number of economic historians talk about it. And one of the problems with the finding, I think it's obviously true at a point in time. I think it's true. But the real more interesting question is lifetime hours. I think high-skilled people today are working very intensely, but I suspect they are retiring earlier and that lifetime hours might be different. But it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Yeah, and as long as we're you know we're we're putting books up, uh, I'll certainly read the book that you recommended. But you know the, the person who who I who, whose data I trust more than anybody else's is Joel Slemrod at University of Michigan. Very good economist. Uh, yeah, and he's he he's got a book out which is very accessible. It's called Taxing Ourselves with John Bakija. Uh, this he you know Joel Slemrod is certainly not a man with an axe to grind. He's a strictly the strictly the facts man kind of guy. Uh, and and if you want a good sense of what all of these data show, uh, you, you could do much worse than reading his book. It's a superb book. I'll take a look at it. Let me. I want to follow up a point you raised earlier, though. We got uh, diverted a little bit. Your point about taxing high-income folks and, and providing services for lower-income folks, we do that pretty dramatically in the United States. One of the things, and part of it I think is relatively unimportant, and part of it I think is very important. The relatively unimportant part is I do think that market forces work against that. Uh, certainly on the upper end, that is, we tax the rich high, at a higher rate, market forces tend to provide higher pre-tax compensation and limit the impact on uh, reducing inequality. But the other point is is that right now in the United States, uh, we talked about this in, I think, the Robert Barrow podcast, I think the bottom uh, 50% of the income distribution contributes about three-ish, maybe four percent, it's under five percent of the uh, tax uh, collections of the federal government. Now, it's a misleading number, as I've said before, and I think it's really important that people understand why it's misleading. It's a misleading number because it doesn't include payroll taxes. So when you include payroll taxes, it's it's obviously very different. But on a, a problem is that most people, 
mistakenly think that their payroll tax is like a user fee that will earn them some security money. It's somewhat like that, but not very much. Uh, but I think most people forget about, ignore, et cetera, their payroll tax burden and tend to focus on their income tax burden. And when you think that you're, the cost you have an extra dollar of uh, government spending is a nickel, it does encourage people to demand more government spending. It's part of the reason that we are moving to uh, – we continue to spend a great deal on the, at the federal level. And we also have, uh, I think, I don't know the numbers lately. I will look them up. But a quite significant portion of the American people pay zero income tax. Obviously, at the high end, that's what gets people incensed. It doesn't incense me that people at the low end pay zero. I kind of like it. Uh, the problem, though, is what it does to the body politic. It encourages people at the low end then to, again, demand more government service because it's a free lunch for them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very interesting phenomenon that, that people tend to ignore uh, the, uh, the payroll tax, which, of course, is, is a highly regressive tax. Regressive and not and, um, yeah. and not insa- and growing, right? It's, it's an increasingly large yeah, I, tax. I, and I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the reason why that is, I, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a mystery to me. Um, uh, and, and and obviously you can't you you can't ignore the payroll tax. It's part of the total ta- it's part of the total total tax yet, structure. Ideologues on both sides will talk about the income tax as if it's the only tax yeah. burden, and of course, which is a mistake. The, the, one, the one thing we haven't talked about today, Russ, which which uh, you know is probably you know it's maybe for another uh, subject for another uh, another hour, and almost certainly uh, for someone else besides me to handle, is why the, the inequalities have increased so dramatically. Uh, you know, I, 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 we all have our theories, but I don't think anyone really knows. No, I agree, and I, but I think we should talk about that a little bit. Uh, and the reason I made the allusion to the date, which is September 25th, 2008, and the current uh, financial uh, turmoil that's going on uh, and the end of Wall Street, is I, I want to raise a point that I think is a, a major flaw in the Piketty and Sia's data. I won't, it's not in their data. It's in, their, uh, in the interpretation of it that many people give, including them, uh, and get your reaction, which is that I see the income distribution in the United States as mostly emergent. That is a set of ex post results based on individual decisions by thousands and millions of people. It's, of course, affects, it's affected by public policy. I don't want to suggest that it has a natural, a totally natural uh, outcome, set of outcomes, but there's a largely natural outcome to it that is out of the control of anyone in particular. That is, even if the President of the United States or Congress wanted to do something about inequality, I think their options are much more limited than people think. I also believe that the current rising levels of inequality are not a conspiracy. Uh, they are not uh, the result of public policy. I think they are the result of in- individual decisions and market forces that are beyond the control of individuals in Congress and public policy. So, for example, one of the factors in the rise of inequality in the United States of income inequality is increasing returns to education. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a beneficiary of that. We live in a weird internet information world relative to 25, 50, and 100 years ago. I've made this point before. You know, 50, maybe 40 years ago, a couple of economists could make some money on the side. Uh, that was Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman writing for Newsweek magazine. Now dozens of economists uh, make money, some not very directly when we blog, 
but indirectly through speaking engagements and other things and writing for all the myriad of publications that now have a thirst for content. So it's a very – it's a much better time today to be educated than it was uh, 25 and 50 years ago. Technology has done all kinds of things to enhance the returns to be having a scarce skill. And so the, that, those are the two things that I think about that uh, have increased the inequality in the United States, the role of education, but just technology and skill generally that is scarce is earning a much higher return. Now, there are many other things going on as well. I don't suggest that's the only thing. But when I look at that, I think – I see that mostly as a good thing uh, because most of those folks I think have enhanced the lives of lots of other folks. most obvious example I like to use is Sergey Brin who invents Google, becomes one – goes from being a, uh, a poor graduate student to one of the wealthiest uh, – 10 wealthiest people in America. And he didn't hurt anybody by that. In fact, he made people better off. So in times when entrepreneurial opportunity is greatest – which I would argue in the last 50 years has been in the 80s and 90s and the beginning of the 20th century until about three or four days ago, beginning of the 21st century until three or four days ago, uh, you're going to see a lot of fortunes made. People are going to pop up into the top 1%, the top 5%, top 10%. And mostly I think that's good. Uh, and I don't know why people view that as some kind of uh, a bad thing. In particular, uh, I like what PGR work has said, and I've, I've said it myself and stolen it, which is wealth is not a pizza. And so it's not just the fact that you're getting a bigger sh amount, even though your share might go down. It's the fact that that's the wrong way to think about how wealth gets carved up and handed out in a capitalist free market system, of which ours is still roughly one. So I don't see why, for example, in today's world, if you are unhappy with your status, and you go to college and you get a degree in a serious subject, you're going to get ahead in the United States relative, relative to the case than if you don't. I would argue that most of the mechanisms that are, were in place 20 and 30 and 40 years ago are still in place for getting ahead. It doesn't mean everybody gets ahead. It doesn't mean everybody's capable of going to college, studying something difficult and serious. And we could think about and talk about what we should do about that to help those folks. But I find it hard to believe that the current levels of inequality are the result of anything other than most people's personal choices, and and the system that allows them to thrive. Yeah, let me let me let me let me let me let me expand on that. I, I don't disagree with that. I think that um, you know ninety five percent, maybe even one hundred percent of what you've said is is true. That, that, that the, in, the the increase in inequality is certainly not due to some vast right wing. Uh, conspiracy. It, 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 it has to do with uh, with a skill with a skill premium, which is what you're describing. Uh, you know, my favorite example is, is is which I think is a little off, but it's a wonderful it's a wonderful it's a it's a wonderful phrase, which is the O-ring theory of uh, of of the skill premium, which is that in an agricultural society in which a farmer can perform one task with 95 uh, percent accuracy, you know, having 100 percent accuracy really doesn't make you that much more productive. You know, when you're when you're putting you know, potatoes into the ground. Uh, but if you're working in a in a in a high tech factory with a 300 step process, there's a big difference between you know performing each step with 95 percent uh, accuracy, uh, because eventually after 300 steps you'll you'll get a zero result. Uh, you know, versus 100 percent accuracy. So and the reason, certainly, and the reason you call it the O ring is. No, the oh, the O ring, of course, was was the famous uh, uh, bit of sealant that that failed during the nineteen eighty six Challenger uh, shuttle uh, launch, 
and that's why it exploded. Right, a tiny uh, piece of yeah. poorly executed material. Yeah, just, just you know, among among hundreds of thousands or millions of steps that had to be performed. So I no, it's not it's not the result of some conspiracy. Or I think not too much to do. Although I think there is an aspect of government uh, policy, but I agree it's it's largely due uh, to technological factors, and these are basically a good thing. And I think the challenge is to learn how to deal uh, with the negative effects of the inequality that that produces. Uh, certainly, you know, I, I don't want to turn the clock back uh, to, to the pre-modern, the pre-electronic uh, era, but I think that, that it does need uh, attention. My guest today has been William Bernstein, author of A Splendid Exchange, as well as many fascinating books on investment, which we've never talked about on this podcast, but maybe down the road we will. Bill, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.